Welcome to Extreme Pragmatism. Today I'll dive into a debate that's about as divisive as they come, one that is older than America itself. Every great civilization has weak points, painful parts of its legacy. Sometimes that legacy lingers, rearing its ugly head at every turn. In the United States, racial tensions are at the core of many topics of conversation. They underlie the struggle of consciously choosing to be the melting pot of the world. The American existence is wrought with the roots of our racial past. Some, however, call for us to move on. The days of slavery and Jim Crow are behind us, they say. Here, I'll make a different case, that while the laws have mostly changed in favor of equality, the remnants of a system of oppression still remain, simply due to our inability to address the sins of our past and to pull those who were once oppressed up to equal footing. The past still looms large, and it will until we choose to make a different choice. Hey everyone, uh, I'm Bryant Jefferson. This is Extreme Pragmatism, and today we're going to talk about the racial caste system that's existed in America for a very long time. Um, we've decided, first of all, to change up the format of this podcast. The first one that was released a couple weeks back was on the societal monolith, and it was scripted. Um, from now on, they will not be scripted. I found that a little bit rigid and a little bit probably unentertaining. Um, as with any new production, changes are going to be made, different methods are going to be tried, and I want to make this a little bit more organic. I want this to be more of my, my perspective on issues that matter rather than me being able to contemplate and iron out any human thought of mine, I suppose. So it's not going to be scripted. It'll just be a 30-minute monologue off the cuff. We'll go through news stories and ideas that relate to the topics, and it'll just be more like a conversation. Uh, so today I want to talk about the racial caste system, and if you say that, you're inevitably already going to get pushback. Many people will deny that a racial caste system exists. There's this belief that, A, when Barack Obama was elected, racism couldn't exist because a black man held the highest position in the United States. That was a pretty widespread belief. There were a lot of more moderate voices in that general political sphere that didn't believe that. I would argue more, I'll be fair, I, probably more that didn't believe that. But there was a section of them that did. There's also this belief that the, the laws put in place since Jim Crow and since Martin Luther King Junior's days and since all the years following that have leveled the playing field. And to a large degree, there is some truth to that. We've certainly moved towards a more racially equitable society. I think that's difficult to deny. But there's a lot of context to that debate that is very often missed. So when you have a problem, and I'm talking any problem, don't, no matter what it is, just generally a problem and you make a choice to solve it, and you say we're going to solve it, and you orient people towards solving that specific problem. That doesn't solve the problem. Essentially, and there are some differences, sure. Essentially, that's what we did with the racial divide in our country. And solving the racial divide in our country was inherently going to be difficult from, it, from our conception. It was inherently going to be that way. Because... Every nation has their primordial sin. For America, it was racism. We didn't invent racism. We didn't invent slavery. That's 
silly, obviously. But we were built upon it. And once again, it's fair to say that other civilizations were as well. But none quite to the degree that we were. And none where that was our central, it was literal, literally central to the way we operated. It was a part of our ethos, the fact that slavery was okay. Because when we got to America, a lot of what built our economy was agriculture. We were very agrarian. And that means that we needed a lot, a lot of labor. We needed a ton of labor. And those in America couldn't do it, do it themselves. We didn't have enough bodies. We didn't have enough workers. So the solution to that was to find the cheapest labor possible, which you still see, see today to a degree. By no means slavery, but cheap labors persistent across the world. You see the same human instinct behind slavery and behind what built our nation still exists today. There's outsourcing, I think, is the most prevalent example of the same human instinct. It's obviously obviously not as bad because we're paying workers and they can sort of make a living, I suppose. But it's the same instinct, it, the capitalistic, capitalistic instinct to find the cheapest labor to increase profit margins. That's, that's essentially the ethos behind it, and it was when slavery began in America. That instinct has never really been addressed. And what I mean by that is, in the 1800s, we abolished slavery. In the 1900s, we addressed segregation but there's the decay of a system that was inherently unequal that still exists today. If you give someone in a 500 meter race, if you give someone a hundred meter advantage from the get go, you give them that head start, they're going to win the race. And that isn't to say people today chose that path for us collectively. But as you'll see, and as will be a theme when we discuss the American ethos, sometimes we ha have to reconcile the problems that we created for ourselves in the past. It's okay to admit that once before, America did something wrong. It doesn't make us any less great. Anyone who visits the United States, and I've heard it time and time again, anybody that visits the United States is enthralled with the openness, with the economic opportunity, with the, just the hope that exists when you come to our shores. That's still there. I promise you that's still there. This idea that it's gone now because of the current administration or because of any other political trend simply isn't true. Talk to any immigrant whether they're here for school, whether they're here because they're, they were seeking asylum, anywhere in between on that spectrum, you're going to get a very, very similar answer. They're here because there's opportunity and they have largely not been disappointed. So this idea that we need to be afraid to recognize the sins of our past, even when they're going to make America even greater and really don't speak to us, to our ethical ideals is a tad bit odd to me and 
like I said, I, in the next few weeks or so, I'll talk about uh, a specific example of that. We'll talk about the what many Republicans called the apology tour during the Obama administration, where he went to several countries that the United States has had wronged in the past, uh, be it Laos, um, be it Japan. And, you know, even if you agree with the idea of dropping two atomic bombs on Japan, there's still some reckoning that comes from that. There's still repercussions being felt today, health-wise. Um, you see the same thing in Laos, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but you see the same thing in Laos when we during the Vietnam War, we essentially carpet bombed that entire region. Not Vietnam wasn't the only country to get bombed. And Laos still has active bombs nestled throughout its countryside. There are often, even today, which I still find incredible, there are bombs that go off that are touched by children, by anyone that might come across them, that are exploding decades after Vietnam. And the Obama administration made it a point to put money towards solving that issue. If you want to read more about it, there's a pretty large section of it in um, Ben Rhodes' new book, which came out, I believe, last year on the Obama presidency. It's a, it's a good book anyway if you want to get a little bit behind the scenes of the Obama administration and of the White House's um, foreign policy. And really any White House's foreign policy because they all operate pretty much the same diplomatic, uh, diplomatically. So it, it really is an interesting read. Anyway, that is, that's definitely relevant because that involves r repenting, essentially. I think there's a very big uh, religious parallel to what we're talking about here. Sin is inevitably going to happen, but being able to own up to that and to repent allows you to move forward and to be better. And I feel like America generally needs to look back on our past, especially our racial legacy, and just repent. It, these mistakes weren't made by us. They were made in a different time. I'm a white man. I, you know, I am perfectly willing to repent, to admit the problems that people of that era created, and also recognize that I didn't make those choices. I didn't, I wasn't sitting in the Senate. I wasn't a plantation owner. That's okay. Those can be both be equally tr true. I can work to even the playing field, actively work and recognize that America did an entire group of people wrong. But I can also recognize that we did wrong. And to those who wonder what I mean by the fact that the racial caste system still, still exists and that people generally in African-American communities, I'm specifically talking about African-American communities. There are certainly disadvantaged communities otherwise, but we don't have enough time really to get into that. Uh, there are some startling statistics across the board that speak to racial and gender inequality. Um, but we can't really get into those. We'll get into gender inequality at another point, and that's a that's an extremely divisive topic. Talking about the pay gap and and that sort of thing, but that's <laughs> that's for a different different podcast episode. So, I think the most prevalent one, most prevalent 
policy issue I see related to r racial caste, racial, the racial caste system that has, exists in America. And there are plenty. There are plenty. You can go down the, down the board looking at statistics related to this, graduation rates, uh, median income. It's, it's startling how, how across the board obvious it is that one demographic is so far ahead of another demographic. And it's simply startling that we haven't recognized that it isn't because of the capacity of those different demographics. I think you often try to see it painted that way. And I, I don't even think it needs to be said that that's not remotely true. Capacity is not the problem. It's a startling lack of investment in, in those communities. God forbid I say reparations, but because that's probably maybe top five most divisive words in politics. And it's going to be a big debate in 2020, which I'll, I'll be very interested to follow. I'm a big proponent of universal basic income, which serves as a kind of across-the-board reparation. It basically ensures investment in those uh, hurt communities. And it serves as reparations to a point. But s something obviously needs to be done. And the issue I want to talk about briefly related to the issue in inequality that still exists, that still exists to this day, uh, it's the idea of redlining. Um, most people that work in any organization that works towards racial equality knows exactly what redlining is. It's not super well known. I've had a couple discussions with uh, more right-leaning friends that don't know what it is, and I think that's fair. It's I mean, it sounds pretty academic. I don't know why someone who doesn't, who hasn't studied it, would know it. But essentially, redlining involves denial of financial services or other services. Uh, generally, you'll see it, you'll see it in real estate. I think that's probably the biggest. You'll see home values fall when an African American family moves into a more affluent, generally white community. And I think. It's interesting because we, we're talking about apathy, essentially, our inability to address actively the cracks in our system. And redlining is a freaking great example of that because essentially, if you look at this statistically, and I've had someone bring this argument up to me, if you look at it stati statistically, what realtors do makes a little bit of sense. If you completely eliminate the ethical discussion of this, if you don't look at ethics at all, it makes sense. Because you're limiting opportunity in those largely white affluent areas if you're taking African-American families in there. Because what if there are other homes there that still need to be sold that now are worth less because of an African-American family moving in? If you look at it like that, a purely monetary standpoint, it makes a little bit of sense. But that also speaks to the apathy we're talking about. So essentially, our inability to work actively against redlining and to find ways to combat the loss in value of those homes in the general area. And this, this holds true no matter what the background of that African-American family is. The father could be a neurosurgeon, the, wi the wife could be 
in that general general realm too, they could be doing very well for themselves. It does not matter. Property values fall. And redlining exists like this across the board. As, as I said when I described it, banking, health insurance. We live in such a capitalistic society that we look at these things financially and assume it's okay because we think everyone's on an equal footing. This takes a lot of deeper reflection to recognize it. So it's not acceptable, but somewhat understandable to recognize that when someone makes this decision, it can be financially driven. But this also speaks to our inability to embrace collectivism. We're such an individualistic society that those decisions to deny those services to African-Americans are acceptable because I'm looking out for my own. And that's why you see this idea that there isn't any inequality. There isn't this hierarchical system put into place. Why you see that propagated so much throughout certain media outlets. Because it vindicates any idea that financial, financially driven thought is the best way to operate. And why worry about other people when they have the same, same opportunities you do? There's this idea that we're all competing with each other to succeed. So whether it's honestly ignorance to the idea that there's this unequal hierarchical system or it's this idea this very very selfish idea that certainly exists that maybe I am in a, at an advantage so I'm going to use it because we're inherently competing for a finite amount of success and affluence and opportunity I would make the case that we're not searching for a finite amount of success. I think there's a far more equitable option. That's why I've long been a proponent of universal basic income. But we refuse to look into any idea of an equitable racial system. And eventually, we're going to reach an inflection point where inequality becomes bad enough due to whatever, whether it be automation, whether it be consolidation, whether it be outsourcing, any of those factors. We're going to see it come to a head again. And we're going to have to reconcile our past once again. So if there's one thing that we can do in the racial debate, it's to be aware that while our generation might have actively chosen policy-wise, generally, to alleviate some of the, in the, policy, the policy inequality and the policy, the poor policy decisions related to racial hierarchy, there still is an active place for people, everyday people, to recognize that A, there, 
there's isn't a finite amount of success and fulfillment that exist and that we can all reach a state of fulfillment. B, that collectivism is okay. We can still be a capitalistic society and I am I'm a capitalist. Plain and simple, I'm a capitalist. But that we can be more ca- we can be more collectivist and that we can change financial incentives to help lift up, up those communities. And see that diversity isn't just for diversity's sake. It isn't just to say I have this many African Americans and this many women working for me. You know, the token black or the token woman. It's to say that we value diversity because diversity of background means diversity of thought. And that diversity of thought and diversity of background is what makes America special. So if there's one thing we can get from all of this, it's the idea that awareness is the first step. Awareness that we aren't going to be able to move beyond our racial past unless we continuously, arduously, actively work to alleviate those smaller problems. We've chipped away at the big ones. Slavery, Jim Crow. But now we're at the point where we're working on the edges, at the racial remnants. We're working to chip away and to slowly move towards a more equitable, diverse society. Thank you. Next week, we'll jump into an issue that's core to my past. Mental health. Stigmatized and misunderstood, the path toward a more empathetic world runs directly through mental health awareness. We all struggle, and we must all seek to empathize with that very fact. Join me next week as we jump into a deeply personal episode of Extreme Pragmatism.